again, everyone. Welcome to Cotton Grower Magazine's Cotton Companion Podcast. I'm Jim Stedman, editor of Cotton Grower. With me, as always, my colleague and good friend, Beck Barnes. Now, we've been getting reports on how good or how not so good crops looking by midsummer. But I'll tell you, based on some fields I saw in West Tennessee over the weekend, I'm really impressed with how things look in this area. With some of the crazy weather we've been dealing with for the past few weeks, I guess you could just about expect anything out there. And uh, what do you think of better? Yeah, I'm glad that, uh, I, I mean this sincerely, I'm happy that the cotton crop is enjoying all the rain uh, around here in the Mid-South and the kind of upper Delta area, uh, across the Boot Hill and across uh, Arkansas Delta and upper Mississippi Delta. Uh, my electricity, on the other hand, has not been enjoying uh, the storms that have come through here. I've been a, uh, been a, a power and light and water refugee uh, for much of the past 10 days here in Midtown. I mean, our power goes out up here in East Memphis, rather, uh, every time the wind blows. And man, it has been blowing for the past month, really. Uh, it's been a mess here in Memphis, power going out. But anyhow, Crimea River, I, uh, I am happy that uh, our farmers are enjoying some rain around here. I know that I, I um, talked to a couple of our buddies out in West Texas over the past couple of weeks, and it's a different story out there. You know, I, I guess generally what I'm hearing is it's just kind of been spotty with rain earlier in the season. And, uh, you know, we had great hopes with all of the weather reports we were reading uh, in the early spring about changing to an El Nino. I think I've got that right, Jim. Um, and That's true, uh, yes. Very good. Yeah, there was going to be more rain this season, especially compared to last season. And that we did see a little bit early on, apparently, out there, but yeah, we need some more at this point. Uh, just still a little dry uh, in a lot of those pockets out there on the high and rolling plains. So, yeah, if we could just give them a fraction of uh, what we've gotten here in Memphis over the past 10 days, I, I'd, we'd both be happy about that. Yeah, definitely. Well, yeah, rain, regardless of, of where it is, uh, we know overall acres are down this season. Uh, it, it's interesting the expectations are still calling for roughly a 16 million bale crop out of this. And that's, that's pretty healthy and ambitious based on how this year has gone so far. But uh, speaking of ambitious, we're actually expanding the scope of this companion episode to look at the status of cotton production season in Australia. I had the opportunity to visit with three representatives of the Australian cotton industry recently. We had a great conversation about some of their challenges and about some of the differences and similarities between production down under and across the U.S. cotton belt. It's a great time with that interview, some interesting folks to talk with, and I think you're going to enjoy it. So stay tuned. We're going to share that with you in just a few minutes. But first, a few other items to share. Yeah, Jim, uh, you know, uh, as you know, Cotton Incorporated is conducting a natural resource survey with all of the U.S. cotton producers uh, they're trying to gather information to help guide that organization's future research priorities and document U.S. cotton production improvements. It's an online survey. It should take about 25 to 35 minutes to complete. And the participants who complete the survey before July 31 are going to be mailed a free 30-ounce Yeti Rambler Cup featuring the seal of cotton trademark that's so popular. Uh, that's the one that's on everybody's car tags that you see around town. So that, that'd be a Pretty nice little uh, tchotchke to get uh, in exchange for completing that survey. 
Uh, only aggregated data from the survey will be used, so don't worry about uh, no individual rower data is going to be shared. Don't worry about that. And a similar version of this survey was administered in 2008 and 2014. So having a representative and up-to-date data set of U.S. cotton production is critical to help tell U.S. cotton's sustainability story and document continuous improvement in the industry. Uh, to take the survey, you can visit cottoninc.com slash ag survey. That's cottoninc.com forward slash ag survey. Or you could see the complete article on cottongrower.com, which features a QR code that can be scanned to access the survey. Look at us being so technologically advanced, having QR code uh, on our screen. Yeah, if y'all don't know how that works, take a picture of that code with your phone or just open your cameras, uh, your phone's camera and uh, scan that QR code and it'll give you a link that you can click and go take the survey. Again, the deadline is July 31 and that's coming fast. And um, we know that they're going to appreciate your input. They need your input. For those of y'all who have not had the chance to go visit Cotton Incorporated uh, there in North Carolina, boy, I, if you ever get the chance, I highly encourage you to do that. It's so neat. The research and development they're doing there is so important to our industry, uh, but they don't know what to focus on if y'all don't tell them what to focus on. So go take that survey and let them know what's happening out in the real world so they can best serve you. So switching gears for a second. Uh, this is normally Jim's beat, but he's letting me, he's he's giving me the wheel to the uh, crop progress report. Go for it, man. So I'm happy to do that. So uh, it's always said that Cotton loves the heat. We know that's true based on the numbers from USDA crop progress report for the week ending July 23. Uh, the heat of the past week has made a big difference, especially up there in Oklahoma. Overall squaring is now reported in 78% of the U.S. crop. That's up 14 points in the past week and still, but still five points behind the five-year average for this date. Seven states, so about half the belt, are currently ahead of their respective average. Likewise, Bowl set is now reported in 37% of the total crop. That's up 12 points in the past week and two percentage points off of average. Three states are ahead of their five-year average uh, when it comes to bowl set. So what about Oklahoma? Uh, the report shows that cotton maturity exploded in the state over the past week. Squaring jumped from 32% all the way up to 79%. That is a whopping 37 percentage points. And bowl set went from unreported to 25% across the state. Pretty good week. Uh, I suspect it was a little warm up there uh, in Oklahoma the last week. Uh, overall, U.S. cotton conditions showed a few percentage points movement movements, but remained relatively consistent. 46% uh, of the crop is rated as good as ex good slash excellent. 30% rated as fair, and 24% rated poor or very poor. Yeah, yeah, I, it's it's actually a pretty good report for this week, uh, midseason. I will I will point out one discrepancy in there simply because you know, East Tennessee guy doing math, sort of you know along the same lines of you know Old Miss math. Yeah, not not terribly reliable. That squaring number from from Oklahoma is actually up forty seven points in the past week, rather than thirty seven. I would have just would have plowed right through. I would not have done that. That's all right because I, I after after doing all my all my calculations yesterday, I go and it doesn't look right. But what the heck, math is not our strong point, nor does it need to be. Yeah, as we have proven time after time, <laughs> repeatedly. <laughs> yeah. 
there's a cycle here, you know. I don't know, that, and we'll probably never get out of it. Yeah, you know what the heck. Anyway, back to some serious stuff. Several weeks ago at Southern Cotton Generous Association summer meeting over in Alabama, the program featured some presentations on the status of the Australian cotton industry from three prominent mates. Uh, Nickel Thompson, who's International Sales Manager for Vandergriff America. Tony Lockery, who is Senior Agronomist and Manager for Agricultural Marketing and Production Systems. And Mike Murray with Nemoid Cotton and a Technical Director. Uh, a product called Fiber Trace. Now, we had the opportunity to visit together for a few minutes and discuss a broad range of topics related to Australia and to the U.S. We had a great visit, and here's what they had to say. Well, at this point in the cotton growing season, U.S. growers are working hard to, uh, to manage their weeds, insects, and, and plant size, and the focus is completely on their fields. But in other parts of the world, the focus is on wrapping up this year's crop. And we're sitting in Florence, Alabama for the Southern Cotton Jenners Association summer meeting. And we've had the opportunity to, uh, to kind of widen our vision, so to speak, uh, with participation of several members of the Australian cotton industry with us. They're in the U.S. visiting with some of their counterparts. They're attending this meeting and they're graciously taking some time to sit and visit with us today. So joining us for this episode are Nickel Thompson. He's international sales manager for Vandergriff America. Tony Lockery, who is Senior Agronomist and Manager, Agricultural Marketing and Production Systems, and Mike Murray with Nemoe, is that the, did I pronounce that correctly? Nemoe, okay, Cotton Limited and Technical Director of Fiber Trace. Gentlemen, thank you for taking time this morning to, uh, to sit, uh, visit with us, and, and welcome to the Cotton Companion. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Let's start with just a quick history of cotton in Australia. I know in the U.S. you can trace the history back centuries. Um, when did the Australian industry really pick up and take off? Uh, yeah, the, the industry picked up, uh, well, the modern industry, um, 1961 it started. Mm -hmm. I, think, uh, I think it was Frank Hadley and Paul Cole out of California. Um, they came over in 1961, and then um, soon after, several other American families followed, and that's when the industry started. But in, the actual first cotton was grown in 1788, but it wasn't very successful. And, yeah, so the modern industry, 1961. Okay. How many growers are, are part of the industry in Australia right now? Time to read about 1,500 farms, uh, farmers growing cotton, and 90% of them are family farms. Yeah, so we're not a massive industry in terms of numbers, but we're we're pretty productive and pretty efficient. Yeah. What what areas of, of Australia now? I know they're kind of multiple areas of production. Where where's the primary production? Yeah, the main production started in the Namoi and Blighter Valleys in uh, sort of northern New South Wales, and then spread into any anything that was black and flat and, and had water. Uh, and a bit of Celsius, a bit of more Fahrenheit in your country, so a bit of temperature. Um, so it spread. The main industry would have about a thousand kilometres spread on it, north to south. But lately, we've had some more areas pop up that are keen to grow cotton and, and starting to look like they're growing, at putting gins in as well. Mm -hmm. uh, Mike, how many gins are there in Australia right now? Thirty-six. Thirty-six. And there's a few. The uh, Nemoi Cotton owned the majority of um, 
of these gins and they're spread from the the Queensland border down down to the southern parts of New South Wales. Um, the Oscop group was was a big large part of, of um, the expansion of the cotton through the seventies, eighties, and right through to the mid two thousands. Um, but it's been taken over by uh, Australian food and fibre over the last two years. <laughs> um, other than that, there's a few Queensland cotton that's got around six or seven gins, um, and then there's there's quite a few independence as well mm-hmm. are there uh, are there plans for new gins i know you were talking about expanding seacott production moving into some other areas of, of the country so new- there is there's a, a push north the, the groundworks have started uh, around kananara which is um far north of western australia mm-hmm. there's also a um a gin being being constructed as we speak in the northern territory near catherine um, and the, there's pre-planning towards building a gym in North Queensland as well. One of the things that fascinated me yesterday in your presentation I was the photo of the truck with three trailers. Mm-hmm. And what you're moving, moving that cotton, what, 2,000 miles to get to a gin mm-hmm. on it? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. But that's um, where those new gins will be. We won't be moving that far because it's not profitable. But that's right. It was, yeah. You needed to do that, you know, just to make, yeah, get, get the cotton into the gin. I think it's universal. You do what you have to do. Yeah. It doesn't matter what country you're in to get to get things done. Uh, Tony, you mentioned uh, the biggest factor in uh, in cotton production in Australia, obviously, is, is water. It's water, water management. Yeah. Uh, it's obviously, that sounds real familiar, you know, from, from a U.S. perspective, too. Uh, what are some of the challenges and constraints that your growers have to deal with? And, and I'm sure there's a lot of similarities between what you what you have and what the U.S. growers have. But uh, what what do your growers generally have to have to work with in terms of, you know, just in field and also regular regulatory? Yeah, so we're a semi-arid country in terms of our water availability. Our, our Murray-Darling Basin, which is the biggest area that grows cotton, averages about 19 inches of rain a year. That's it. Um, so they, we try and store water in dams when we have wet seasons. Our rain's very variable. We can, you know, we can go down to four inches a year, or could we up? We could be up forty inches a year. So, I um, mean, it might all turn up in, you know, ten inches overnight or something. So we've got very variable climate. We try and and mitigate that a bit with um, storage dams. Um, you know, bigger ones that are that are government funded on on valleys or even our our small storages on farms that. We'll try and hold a year or two's worth of water in that. Yeah. Uh, we've got a very high evaporation rate, so some of our valleys would have, uh, they would have 80 inches of evaporation, so hot and dry um, in a given year. So we'd try and grow a cotton in, in deep black soils that hold a lot of moisture. They would hold 8 to 10 inches of available moisture for the crop, and then we're very judicious and we would try to be very efficient in how we grow our crop to, to make the most out of every drop of water that we can get. You know, if we get a fall of rain out of the sky, we're, we're very grateful for it, and we, we'll catch that on farm. And in our dry, even in our dryland farms, we'll we'll plant our cotton into so, into wheat stubble, um, so the moisture that falls stays in the ground and doesn't mm-hmm. run off or evaporate as much as possible. Yeah. You you mentioned obviously you do have dryland acres. You also have some irrigated acres. But you were talk, what is this? You talked to us about banked irrigation. 
Yeah, bankless irrigation. So that's a form of surface irrigation. Okay. So the cotton's still growing on a hill with a furrow, mm-hmm. but instead of a head ditch uh, and a tail drain at either end of the field, it'll just be fairly open with a big gate that, and the water will run in from both ends of the field. The field's quite level. Uh, wets up to the middle and then it drains out to the next set. So it drains out of that paddock to the next one. So it's an innovation, particularly around labour saving. Um, so we find it very hard to, to get labour, similar to here, uh, to pull siphons or, or do other work on the farm. So uh, we noticed in the drought in 17, 18, 19, a lot of growers, because they had dry paddocks and wanted to try and hold the stuff they had, did a lot of work redeveloping paddocks to um, to bankless. Yep. It's still an efficient way to irrigate, but efficient on labour as well as water. Yeah. Now in the in the US, you know, we've we have this little this what they call the, you know, Palmer Amarath, you know, pigweed, devil weed, you know, and a lot of other names that we can't really say on you know, you know, on, on a broadcast yeah. at this point. What are your problems? We're in a few with funny names as well. <laughs> and I think, you know, we've been using these herbicides only for 50 years and, and Roundup Ready cotton came along and it just looked like it was going to save us all. We saved a lot of time chipping and cultivating, but we just relied too heavily on that one active and we made similar mistakes uh, in Australia. So we've got Roundup resistant weeds, mainly grasses in our scenario. So we've got a lot more grasses, probably four or five Roundup re- resistant grasses, but we still have flea bane and milk thistle and, and we have a red pig weed that are, are reasonably tolerant to Roundup. So we're back doing the pre-emergent herbicides and cultivating. We haven't got many chippers in the field yet. We probably should, but we're using optical cameras as well, optical sprayers. Um, so we're, we're fighting it. We've got a group in Australia called Weed Smart, and that's a government-funded initiative as well, and that goes across all industries, um, just coming up with the best ways to tackle weeds, particularly resistant weeds in our system. That's good. Yep. Nicola, you mentioned yesterday in terms of 100% of your production goes into the export market, correct? Um, tell me a little bit about how that works I think you were saying your your bale size is just a little different than the U.S. Your packaging's a little different in the U.S. What's what's the philosophy behind that, and and how do you make that work? Yeah, so um, all the cotton in Australia is packaged in a cotton bag, which is different to the U.S. Um, it's all um, polyester strap, same as the U.S. Mm-hmm. Six straps per bale. Um, so we our bale is still five hundred pound, but it's a high density bale, and the dimensions are 20 inch by 41 inch. So that means we can stack them too high in a container and we can fit 114 in a container, which allows 26 ton. Whereas a US um, universal density bale, uh, there's only 88 in a container. So that's about just under 20 ton. So six ton per shipment. So, and it's just all about saving. Yeah. Okay. Where, where does most of that cotton go? And all over um china used to be a big market that um you know that went a little bit um sideways i guess through the COVID period um i think they're trying to reform that relationship japan um italy um bangladesh india vietnam yeah so it's it's marketed all over yeah and mike you talked a little bit yesterday in terms of uh, um, and we talked in general about traceability, sustainability, and, and things like that, and the fact that, uh, you know, the market is demanding 
to know where the cotton comes from and, and uh, you know, all the steps involved with it. And you're involved with, with, a, with a, uh, a product or a program called Fiber Trace, I believe. Um, how is that, how, just a quick overview in general, how does that program work uh, in terms of uh, setting up your sustainability, your traceability through the, through the chain? Well, we um, we receive the fiber trace in a in a um, a seven kilo roll. Mm-hmm. It's then delivered into the gin, uh, into the lymph fluid pipe. Um, we do that um, at a rate of around four hundred grams per two twenty seven kilo bale. Um, we need to be able to regulate the machine automatically so that it. Um, fluctuates with the speed of the gin if the gin stand is thrown out or something's bypassed or right for any reason the gin stops the machine needs to to um to identify that and and regulate itself to to be able to monitor the, the same rate um so what then happens is once the bales uh ejected out of the press it's scanned um it's married with the, the male, male number, mm-hmm. and that information and data is collected and sent through to the cloud. Once that bale then rece- uh, is received by the spinning mill, it's scanned again. Um, and then again, in, when it's dyed, made into fabric, all the way to the retail. So then we've created a chain of responsibility. Mm-hmm. It can be traced. Um, uh, the, the brands at the moment around the world are demanding uh, transparency right um traceability so and i think in, in the near future i think the consumer will will do so also yeah i think we're already seeing that a little bit with uh certainly with 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 the rise of the uh of the sustainability and traceability programs all over the all over the world uh you know particularly in the u.s we've got several you know several programs uh that growers can get involved in a lot of companies have their own sustainability programs and they all just kind of fit together and and uh you know, almost like a quilt. Yeah. On that. Now, all of you work closely with the U.S. industry, one shape, form, or, or another. What differences or similarities do you see between the two countries? Anything in terms of cotton production? Is there anything in the U.S. that you'd like to try in Australia? And is there anything in Australia that you think U.S. growers should try that you think would work over here? I think the fact that um, we're getting together and communicating. There's a lot, a lot of feedback after the um, the um, the association meeting yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that just that communication barrier has been broken between the two countries, and and that will only help the future and cobble industry in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, new innovations that on both sides of the Pacific um, can be shared. I think uh, we've always looked at this, the U.S. for new technology uh, to supply us with the the, um, the machinery needed to, to gin cotton. Right. Um, so I think uh, the more the more we get together and, and talk, and I think it's only going to be a good thing for the industry. Okay. Matt, any, any thoughts? Uh, um, yeah, some of the similarities would, would be, I think, a lot of the gins now in America are probably getting bigger and bigger in Australia, and our costs are so high, and... You kind of have to do 50 plus bales per hour, I guess, to mm-hmm. to um, get any sort of profit or, you know, cut even. 
So there's a lot of pressure on that. And I think in the US, there's, you know, the energy costs certainly going up. And I'm not too sure some of the smaller gins might, I mean, I don't know if they'll amalgamate with bigger gins. Um, and then the automation, yeah, that's, um, that's a similarity. Most of it comes from America. And as soon as it comes out, we try to adapt it. Um, it's all labor saving for us. Yep. On the production side, Tony? Yeah, on the production side, I think we've, we've got a great heritage of actually, as Mike indicated before, from America. So our most recent seed and, and industry kicked off in the 60s with American people and ingenuity and, um, and get up and go. Um, the Australian industry has forged on from there and become a very efficient and lean, lean industry. We've got our, you know, similar but, but different issues to deal with. Uh, and I think there's, yeah, there's certainly some, well, the, the um, analogy I had yesterday, I rolled a couple of dice across the floor and I said, well, that's, that's how we started cotton season in Australia. Like we can, we could win or we could lose and we can lose big. We don't have any real protection underneath us if, if a crop fails. Um, our crop at home this year, we were ready to spray it out just before Christmas, and then we got two inches of rain, and away we went again. So, yeah, um, yeah I think we're a little bit more on the edge in terms of risk in our crop, and that that just drives innovation, and it drives um, it drives gains that you didn't think you could make because now you have to, and, and we see that in America as well, and we see a, a more cohesiveness in the industry here. It's great to see the the whole group. Uh, these five states getting together and 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 meeting with the the ginning group and i think the the american industry is just a little bit more spread apart and not maybe as uh as cohesive as ours because ours has really been batting down together for a long time but we can see that happening in australia now we've got areas that are three thousand kilometers away that are starting up so it'll, we'll try and keep our industry really cohesive and i think at the same time we're seeing the U.S. industry becoming more cohesive, as as Nickel said. You know, you've gone in this little area from 300 gins down to 130. Like there's that sort of rationalisation has to happen, and that's a history that you've got to work through, which we don't have. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, to head into the future together, we both got to be doing similar things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've got to be innovative. We've got to be efficient. Yeah. Yeah. I I know, Mike. You mentioned that you're you're in the midst of ginning season right now. Mm -hmm. All, all those gins are running and going strong right now. They are, and um, I've, I've been in constant contact with my ginners, and they're wondering what I'm up to. But, but um, the crop this year was a dry pick. Mm -hmm. um, totally opposite what happened last year with the flooding. But um, it's been a dry pick this year. It's made things a lot easier. Everyone's getting good numbers. Um, it's a lot of, lot of uh, consistency and, and um, less downtime. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's all... Oh well, for um, for the season, we should be finished in probably the first week in September. Our particular general was in uh, 145,000 bales. Namo as a group will in 1.3 million bales. Mm -hmm. So um, it's a, it's a very positive season for us. Antonio, at what point are the growers going to take those dice and roll them back out? When when do they roll back into the fields to to start all over again? Yeah, okay. Well, we're putting money on the table now with fertilizer and and diesel fuel, putting paddocks back together. Um, we've got some water in the system, so we we know we've got a season for some of our paddocks. We may not have full water this year, but that can improve if it rains and if the floods are in trouble again in the other direction. So we'll <laughs> see what happens. But um, we normally plant an irrigated crop in October. Uh, the dryland crop, they'll sometimes wait a little bit longer. They'll get harvest done and then plant the cotton in November. 
Um, so that's when we start rolling the dice and, and adding a few more chips on the way through. And then come April, uh, we'll be defoliating and, and picking April, May and, and through it again. And that's when we find out what the numbers are on the dice at the other end. <laughs> Sounds good. So sitting here today, what's next? Where are you headed next? Are you here, here in the US? Where are you headed next before you head back home? Um, I think, well, I, uh, myself and Mike, we, we head to, back to Memphis and, um, and then on Sunday we go through to Georgia, have a meeting Monday, um, with, um, a farmer and grower, yeah, and, and producer in, in Georgia, just outside of Dawson. Okay. And I believe Tony flies back Saturday or Sunday. Yeah, we fly back Sunday, but we've had an amazing time meeting the Southern Cotton Growing People of America. Fantastic. Um, hospitality, and we were saying yesterday we feel just a little bit closer to heaven when we get together with these people, so that's great. <laughs> and um, we're going to try and get on a couple of farms and yeah, mm -hmm. catch up with some people here and then fly back Sunday. Okay. Any gym visits? Didn't buy, hopefully so. When, um, when we get to Georgia, yeah, we'll, we'll have a little bit of a couple, and, and um, the manager's there is keen to, to show me his wares. <laughs> they always like to show them off. Yeah. Yeah, the way. Definitely. Well, gentlemen. I want to thank you for taking time uh, to visit with me today. Uh, certainly appreciate you sharing uh, how your industry works, your perspective on on the overall global industry. Uh, you know, we've always said U.S. cotton industry is like a great big family, and uh, Australia, I'm, I'm, based on what you're saying, is pretty much the same way at this point. So, uh, so safe travels. Uh, I certainly hope our paths cross again somewhere down the road. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good on so, all right, that's it for this episode of the Cotton Companion Podcast. We want to thank uh, so sincerely our friends from Australia for taking the time to visit with Jim with their excellent accents. Uh, with everyone focused on their daily production tasks, sometimes it's easy to forget that we are part of a vibrant global industry. So, yeah, we appreciated that opportunity to visit with them. And as always, we thank you, dear listeners, for joining us. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. And if you do like what you've heard, Please be sure to spread the word. Tell your friends, tell your farming neighbors about the Cotton Companion podcast. Here's where and how they can find us. You can find the Cotton Companion in three easy ways. First, go to cottongrower.com forward slash companion or simply click the podcast tab at the top of the homepage. Second, subscribe to our channel on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts these days. And three, Sign up for our weekly e-newsletter, The Cotton Grower E-News, that's delivered to your email inbox every Tuesday morning. You can do that by going to cottongrower.com forward slash subscribe. Also, be sure to follow Cotton Grower on social media. We are at Cotton Grower Mag on Twitter. And on Facebook, you'll find us by searching for Cotton Grower Magazine. Guide Companion Podcast is produced twice monthly by Kim Henderson and Tyler Hatch. Our talented colleagues, world headquarters for Maestro Media Worldwide and lovely Willoughby, Ohio. I'm Jim Stedman. He's Beck Barnes. And we'll be back with you in a few weeks with the next episode of The Cotton Companion. Until then, stay cool and good day. Yeah, he works and he works and he works and he works all day. God made it for